Welcome everyone. Thanks for being here. My name is Michael Fratt. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very happy to have everyone back for our latest uh, installment of our class, Alter Ego, Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah uh, with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, it's been uh, a few sessions now where we have been continuing to work through the text and have been focusing in the past on the last week we were working through chapter 21 starting to look at the story of Hagar the second time that we have a conflict between Hagar and her son Yishmael and Sarah and Abraham. And so we started looking at that. We started looking at the ways in which it's connected to some of the narratives with Abimelech that surround it on, on either side, both in chapter 20 and at the end of chapter 21. So I believe today we are going to be picking back up with chapter 21 and over this and next week, which is going to be our last session before Shavuot, we're going to be working through this narrative as well as the Akedah. So we, are very grateful to have everyone here. We always appreciate it if folks are able to keep their videos on if they feel comfortable with it. We appreciate being able to look around and, and get a sense of who's in the room with us. We also appreciate if folks are careful to keep themselves on mute uh, and to remute themselves after chiming in for a question or a comment so that we can avoid any accidental background noise or distractions during the session. Uh, if you have any questions, we will be pausing at a few different points throughout for questions and answers. You can also feel free to put questions in the chat or in the comment section on Facebook Live if you're following us on Facebook. And I will make sure that if it's on Facebook Live that we get those related to Rabbi Silver. Uh, in the meantime, if there are any tech issues that come up or similar questions, please feel free to send me a direct message or a direct chat on, on Zoom, and I will be happy to help. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver to get started. And, or, well, I'll also mention we're going to be mostly looking at chapter 21 in Genesis today. If you have a Tanakh or Chumash at home that you want to follow out of, uh, please feel free to do so. But we will also be doing a screen share, so you'll be able to follow directly on, on Zoom. Uh, and with, with that, we can, we can go ahead and get started. Thank you, Michael. OK, welcome, everyone. So let's again pick up with the story of uh, Hagar Yishmael, Avraham, and Sarah. As we remember, um, Sarah had told Avraham to send away uh, Hagar. She calls her the Amma, together with her son, because her son cannot inherit with, with Yitzchak, with my son. And Avraham uh, doesn't want to do that. Torah says, The matter was evil in Abraham's eyes on account of his son. And even though he has two sons, the son means clearly Ishmael. And then we're at an impasse. Nothing's going to happen. And at this point, God steps into the picture and God instructs Abraham to listen to everything Sarah tells you. That's chapter 21, uh, verse number 12. And then God continues, but don't worry about Yishmael. He's going to be okay. The son of the Amah, Yishmael, will also become a nation. I'll make him a nation. He is, after all, your, your, your seed, your child. 
And this promise about Yishmael uh, echoes the promise made to Hagar back in chapter 16, when the angel speaks to Hagar and says, uh, don't worry, he's going to be a great, a great nation, the father of a great nation, etc." And also in chapter 17, when Avram is concerned about Yishmael, and God said to Avram, towards the end of chapter 17, I've heard you, I accept what you say, and I'm going to ifreti, hirbeti, oto, who have 12 nisiim, make him a great nation. But the covenant is, is with Yitzchak. So the, all this echoes what we know already, back from chapter 16. And listen to everything, shma b'kola. That's an important expression here. We had it back in chapter 16, vayishma avram b'kol sarai. And we have it again over here, not kol asher tomari lechos, everything she tells him, not just to take Hagar, which he told you in chapter 16, but in terms of banishing, chasing her away together with Ishmael. Chasing away Hagar doesn't seem to bother Avram very much. That's what bothers him. It's the chasing away of Ishmael. His name is Ishmael. Avram named him Ishmael. God has heard my prayer. He prayed for, for, for an heir. And now he's been told to chase away. And so he doesn't want to do that. And God, God intervenes and says, listen to everything, everything she says. And before we continue, something just struck me. I mean, it just struck me this moment. I, I, I've talked about it. And in fact, the book, which I hope will come out in Hebrew this month, on the book of Shmuel, Aspects of Kingship and Sefer Shmuel, I discuss it briefly there as well. And that is that a very critical chapter in the book of Shmuel, one might say a critical chapter in Jewish history, but in any event, in the book of Shmuel, directly plays off this conversation between God and Abraham in chapter 21. And what I'm referring to is the beginning of chapter eight of Shmuel Aleph, first Samuel chapter eight. That's the chapter in which the people of Israel ask for a king. So it's a tremendous moment in terms of Tanakh, the request for kingship, the actual request for kingship, which is in chapter eight. And without getting deeply into Sefer Shmuel, because once you get into Shmuel, you never get out of it. So, but the point is chapter eight of First Samuel, I'll read it to you, those who have it is fine. And it begins this way. Chapter eight begins by telling us, by Hikashah Zakein Shmuel. Chapter Perichet, Pasuk Aleph, Shmuel Aleph, when Samuel was old. By Yosem et Banav Shoftim Yisrael. He appointed his sons as judges in Israel. He has two sons. So these are judges in Beersheba. Right away, the name Beersheba suggests to us Abraham, certainly, maybe Yitzchak and Yaakov as well, but certainly Abraham. And the oldest one is named Yoel, the second one is named uh, Aviyah. We already have it. Thank you, Michael. But his sons did not follow his ways. <clears throat> it says, uh, they took graft, they followed after graft. They took bribes. They perverted or subverted justice. So we, we are told, we the reader know, that his sons are no good. It's unclear whether Shmuel himself knows that, in fact, there's evidence in the book of Shmuel that he doesn't know it. Not just because he appointed them initially, Maybe they were initially good and they became corrupted. Maybe the position corrupted them. 
that does happen sometimes. But because later in the book, when he again is assembling all of Israel after the first king of Israel has been anointed and assumed his position, King Saul, Shmuel has a long uh, speech in which he sort of blames the people for choosing the king. And he says, amongst other things, here I am, I'm old, but my sons are still with you. So it would appear that Shmuel, we don't know when they became corrupt, but, and this is the theme of the book of Shmuel, the problems with, with, with succession. That's one of the reasons the book of Shmuel connects deeply to Sefer Breshi, which is also about succession, covenantal succession. Anyway, so this is the story. So the next verse says, verse number four, all of Israel gathers together, all the elders. And they said to Shmuel, you're old. And your sons have not followed in your, in your ways. And that's true. We know that. So now, appoint a king to govern us like all the other nations. So what precipitates, we can't get into this whole question of kingship, good, bad, or whatever. But in any event, which is the core question of the book of Shmuel, but what precipitates the request for a king is the fact that Shmuel is old. All the time Shmuel is not old, nobody's asking for a king. The people are perfectly happy with Shmuel. That's clear. And he appointed his sons, but the sons are corrupt. So that's what precipitates the request for kingship. Give us a king. Then they add, like all the other nations. <clears throat> that is highly problematic, obviously, and echoes what it says in the Torah. If you say we want a king like the other nations, you may have a king. So says the Torah. I can't get into that now. But uh, the point is, that's what precipitates it. And the next verse says, Vayera hadavar well." But the matter was evil in Shmuel. We hear the echo of Abraham. Because they're saying, get rid of your son. <clears throat> we want to go a different path. We don't want your son to, to your sons to lead us. We want someone else to lead us. And that matter was evil for Samuel. And the next verse says. Obey them. And actually, the word is a governing word of chapter 8. It appears several times. Shmuel protests and protests and protests. And he goes back to the people and he warns them about the king. The king will rob you blind. He'll steal your property. He'll do all kinds of terrible things. And the people say, we don't care. End of the chapter. So the people refused to listen to Shmuel's warning in verse number 18. We want a king, like all the nations, to lead us in battle and to judge us. That's what a king does. Here we have a formulation in the Bible, first time, what a king does. By Yomer, Hashem, Shmuel hears what they're saying, and he tells God. Right, right in verse number 19, he goes back, verse 20, he goes back to God in verse 20. This is what the people are saying. He hopes God will say, you know, something's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. So he, the chapter is written, whoever wrote it. The book of Genesis is opened in, in front of him. It's exactly that story. 
the people go to Samuel and say, we don't want your son or sons. We want somebody else. The matter is evil in Samuel's eyes, says God, Shema B'Kolam. And now we just juxtapose, come back to our chapter, exactly the same story. The people say to Abraham, we don't want your son. But no, who's his son? Yishmael. That's his son. He's also Isaac. Yishmael. We don't want your son. The matter is evil in his eyes. Says God, That's actually interesting for other reasons as well, if we were getting into the book of Shmuel. But this is very striking, actually. It, of course, it partially is connected, is connected to the core question of the book of Samuel, namely, what does God think of kingship? What might say, what does the book think of kingship? We know what Samuel thinks. He's against it. What is the book about? What is the book's attitude? What is God's attitude? I presume those are the same, that the book's attitude and God's attitude, I presume to be the same. In any event, I think it's interesting to note, and once again, it's about how texts speak to each other and how the texts of Genesis, basically, Breshit, are our foundational texts. So the great narratives, and Samuel is certainly one of the great narratives, <clears throat> the great ones look for great ones. That's how it works. So the book of Shmuel looks for a central text of the Bible and especially of the Torah upon which to play off and to have its own, you know, its own interpretation, one might say, of the Chumash and to respond to the Chumash, etc. So before we begin today, I wanted to take note of that, of the Shema B'Kolam. Kol asher tamar elecha sorry. You listen to what she said, take Hagar. Vayishma Avram Kol Sarai and then Kol asher tamar elecha sarai Shema B'Kolam. You have to listen as difficult as it is because you can't have because you can't have two, because what Sarah said is correct, because as always Yishmael's around, you'll never see the truth about the covenant. So he, he must go. And Avram then accedes to God's uh, request or command. And that begins in verse 14 by Yashkem Avram Baboka. Now we started this last week, and I just wanted to add a few points before we get to the Akedah which is chapter 22, the next chapter, but just a few uh, observations about the story of the banishment of Yishmael, which must be very difficult for Abraham. And I want to repeat, he didn't want to do it. Very much did not want to do it. In fact, he's not going to do it, I would say, unless God intervenes. God does intervene. So Abraham obeys, and he gets up early in the morning, by Yashkem Avraham Baboker, just like the Akedah in chapter 22. When God commands, you do it, and you do it right away. So he gets up early in the morning. And I talked about this last week. Lechem doesn't mean just a bread. It's not a kind of subsistence diet. It gives, it gives us sustaining food and water. And the water is important because he's going to go out through the desert. And he gives it a, 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 a skin of water, a jug of water. So enough, she has enough provision. That's the, my point. She has enough to make it to where she's got to go. Unless she gets lost, which she will. He places them over her shoulder. What is the significance of some al-shikma? Now, of course, when you read this, you think right away of the next chapter. There, the next chapter, Yitzchak is, Avram takes Yitzchak together with his two assistants, and they're walking towards 
the place that God has chosen. And Avram takes the wood, the wood for the pyre, for the fire, upon which he will sacrifice his son, so he's told. That's the sacrificial altar. But he takes the wood, right? And it says that he gives the wood to Yitzchak, right? Let's see, where's that puzzle? Um, where's that verse? And Yitzchak is carrying the wood. Where is it? Where is that verse? Let's see. Maybe six. Verse number six. Yes, verse number six. Not maybe, definitely. So we took the wood and he places the wood on Yitzchak carries the wood. The uh, Christian Bible was well aware of the Akedah story, obviously, upon which they based the crucifixion for the most part. And uh, yes, we have Jesus carrying the wood for the crucifixion. He carries a cross, as it were, you know? So the point is, he pauses in the arcade that he places it upon, whatever that means, leave that for now. But what is the significance of Sam al Shikhma? And here I want to make a suggestion about the expression Sam al Shikhma. And together with Sam al Shikhma, it's interesting that it says, Sam al Shikhma vietayelid by Yishalchela. He places the provisions on her shoulder together with the yelid with a child, and he sends her away. And if we think about Shechma, Shechem, what comes to mind immediately, of course, the story of Shechem comes to mind. But apart from the story of Shechem, there's an, an, an earlier story that comes to mind. And that's the story, very important story, about the drunkenness of, uh, of uh, Noah. Noah drinks wine, he becomes uncovered in his tent. And then we have, something takes place there, it says in verse number, uh, yeah, let's find that. Uh, that's, um, where is that? Puzzle? Let's see. Let's see. That's a chapter, in chapter nine, but I'm not finding it. Yes, chapter nine. Chapter nine towards the end, in verse number uh, 22, Vayar Chom Avikinan Eter Vata Aviv. So Ham, the father of Canaan, literally saw the nakedness of his father. That could be a euphemism. is used euphemistically in the Torah in Sefer Vayikra. Tells his two brothers, so it says the two of them came together and they placed it on their shechem, on their, on their shoulders, and they cover up their father's nakedness. That's the first time we encountered the idea of shechem and the context of it, unlike Ham, the context is to take responsibility, essentially. And actually the city of shechem and the story of Dina and the story of shechem, which is a Terrific story. I mean, it has all kinds of interesting pieces to it. It's very great. But this, the positive side of, of, of positive side is that it's a story in which the brothers take responsibility for their for their sister. Yes, they may overreact. Yes, there is deception, all kinds of 
unnecessary bloodshed, all that is true. But from the positive side of it, it's brothers taking responsibility for brother. And that actually the Chumash picks up. The story of Shechem is picked up by a hundred different places with all kinds of nuances. But it's picked up, Shechem, the idea of you are responsible. It's picked up in another Genesis story, namely in chapter 37, when the brothers go off leaving Joseph behind. He's told them his dreams in chapter 37. And Jacob wants to intervene to try to save the day. And Jacob says to Joseph, aren't your brothers in Shechem? Let me send you to Shechem. And to see how the brothers are, to bring the, to ask about their welfare and the welfare of the flock. And they're in Shechem, place of brotherly responsibility, the city of brotherly love. So find them in Shechem, Joseph, and maybe this way we can make peace. But what happens, of course, in chapter 37? They don't make peace. Why, why don't they make peace in chapter 37? They don't make peace because the problems are too deep. But it reflects itself in the text that Joseph doesn't get to Shechem on time. The train has left. Why does Joseph not get on time to meet the brothers in Shechem? Like Hagar, he's to'er. And he gets there too late. Had he arrived in Shechem, suggests the Torah, there'd be no problem. The brothers would have been reunited, peace, peace. Everything would have been just fine. But unfortunately, it was a failure. The failure on the part of Joseph. He arrives too late. He's toer. The failure on the part of Jacob, because he intervenes too late. And actually, he wants the Joseph dreams to come true. The failure on the part of the brothers, they're too quick to resolve problems with violence. So everybody is to blame. We can analyze the tragedy and see who's to blame, which is very useful. But on the other hand, at, at when it happens, it's a tragedy. And uh, had he met them in Shechem, uh, Joseph is lost and a, a man, it says, speaks to Joseph. What are you looking for? My brothers, they've left here. They've gone to Dotan, which means quarrel, Dotan and Avira. So we know what's gonna happen. And actually, where is Joseph buried? Buried in Shechem. Shechem right? Jacob says to Joseph. So with the ultimate reunification of Joseph and the brothers in the land takes place in Shechem. But it would have happened earlier. So Shechem is about responsibility. Now come back to our verse. And somehow Shechemah v'yet ha'yelet. The text calls Yishmael a yelet. A yelet is from the word Yirol, the newborn. Now we know he's not a newborn because we know he was circumcised at age 13 in chapter 17. And we know that Yitzchak was born at least a year after that. So we know he's, a, he's a maybe 14 or at least 14 years old, but it calls him a yelled because from the mother's standpoint, her child is a yelled, but also because the text wants to underscore her responsibility. Avram is forced to give him up and he's saying in effect to Hagar, He's your responsibility. He places our shikma. You're responsible now for this child. I can't be. You are the, the parent solely responsible for this child. And 
this puts it to very sharp relief, the behavior of Hagar in the ensuing verses. Because the behavior of Hagar in the ensuing verses is very problematic. First of all, she gets lost, and getting lost, as I pointed out, and the same thing is true of Joseph. Joseph is lost. He can't arrive to the right place on time. That's a critique of Joseph. The Torah doesn't want us to say Joseph is the innocent victim and the brothers are the, are the cruel brothers who want to kill their brother. The Torah does condemn the brothers, but the Torah understands that this family story, everybody has to share the blame, including Jacob, who favored Joseph, etc., and including Joseph, who revels in the dreams, who must tell his brothers his dreams about how they bow down to him, who has the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down, who tells bad things about his brother to his father. The initial picture of Joseph we get in the Chumash is not positive. And we want to understand when you're looking at what happened to look at it from all sides. There's no one person fully responsible. It's a combination of many, many people making all kinds of mistakes that can lead to tragedy. And this is, so she gets lost, but then we have verse number 15. She throws the child under one of the bushes. And the point is, to throw. That's very, that's harsh. She throws the child under one of the bushes and she sits far away. For she said, I don't want to see the child die. Here the Chumash, of course, on one hand, engages us. We are sympathetic to the to the suffering of this woman. She doesn't want to see a, a baby die. But on the other hand, what do you mean you're standing far away you don't want to see? It's not actually about you. It's about the one you are responsible for. You're responsible responsible for this child. And you're the only one responsible at this point because Abraham, as much as he loves his child, has been commanded to send them away. So you're the one fully responsible. And not only that, you're the one that got lost. So you are really responsible. The mess that you're in and that he's in is for the most part your doing, not his. So therefore you don't stand far away. You, you To be with somebody when they are suffering, that's a big thing. And just to demonstrate the contrast between the story over here of Hagar and Yishmael in the desert, I will direct us to another story uh, I will direct us to another story, which of course plays off the story over here and speaks to it very directly. And that's a story we're all familiar with. Namely, it's the story of the birth of Moshe in the second chapter of the book of Shemot. So let's just take a look at that for a moment. And we'll see how that story plays off the story over here. And you read the two stories together. The birth of Moshe is found in Exodus chapter two. And uh, remember that in the first chapter, Pharaoh has decreed that all the boys will be cast into the water, will be killed. The girls you keep alive, and the boys are being thrown into the, into, the, into, the, into the river. So we're told that this woman, a man from the house of Levi, took a woman, from, a daughter of Levi, 
and the woman becomes pregnant and gives birth. Very interesting verse. When she saw that the child was told, she hid him for three months. Okay, won't get into that question. What mother thinks the child is not told? Fine. But now she can't hide him anymore. After several months, three months, she can't hide him. So she takes a little teva, a tikrach or teva gomer. She takes a little, a little ark, one might say, a little basket called the teva. Reminds us very much of the Noah story. She's going to try to save her son through the teva. And she, uh, she corks it with pitch. And she puts the boy in there. And she puts it by the edge of the river. And the sister stands from afar to know what, what would befall him. And we notice right away, it's interesting, that you have kind of a similar scene to what we encounter in our chapter. In our chapter, we have a child who's placed, who actually thrown in our chapter. And Hagar, the mother, stands a distance away. The distance of a Bosha. And you have over here in the birth of Moshe, a similar situation. You have a child that's placed a distance away. As it says in verse number four, she stands from a distance. But, but her standing from a distance is not because I can't see him die. Her standing from a distance is to know, not just to see, but to know that they are. Critical word in the book of, actually critical word in Genesis and Exodus. To know what would, be, what would occur to this child. To intervene at the appropriate time. And notice that when it talks about putting him, Moshe, the little boy, he has no name yet. Putting this little boy by the side of the river in this teva, notice the verb that the Torah uses twice, batosen, to place. That's not the same as to throw. They didn't throw the teva by the side of the river. They place him in the teva and they place the teva. So we have two similar stories. And it's very interesting that in the case of Moshe, as well as Ishmael, the Torah in describing this little, and he is a newborn. He's certainly a yelet. What is interesting is that the Torah describes this little newborn, maybe he's three months old, as not only a yelet, but also as a nar, very striking, because Pharaoh's daughter comes by, and perhaps the sister and mother know that Pharaoh's daughter will come by, and uh, she sees she um, she sees this little teva on the in the water by the water. Uh, it's in the water, perhaps, but in, in the reeds next to the water. So she sends her maid to bring it. She sends her Amma. The word Amma is exactly the term used to describe Yishmael in that chapter. Here the Amma is sent to retrieve it. And she looks to see the, who, who this newborn is, and behold, a Nar is crying. Nar. Strange to use the term Nar. As strange as it is to use the term yellow for Yishmael, it's equally strange or stranger 
to use the word nar for Moshe, who certainly is a yelet. And the, the rest of the story, uh, he's called a yelet. Tikrat aim hayelet, erichi et hayelet azeh, in verse number 10, uh, verse number nine, again, yelet, he is a yelet. But it's curious that the Torah has gone out of its way to describe him also as a nar. Whatever that's about, obviously the two stories speak to each other and the contrast is glaring. And in one case, the distance is about watching from afar to figure out, to know what's gonna happen and, and, and to intervene as, as the sister intervenes in the story. Shall I call for you a nursing woman from the Hebrews? So when she maneuvers to bring this child, Moshe, back to his natural mother who will nurse him, who will nurture him, and will, if the purpose of the Chumash will inculcate in him certain values, and not just the mother, but the sister. The sister is instrumental. And in fact, after Moshe is brought back to Pharaoh's daughter, who takes care of him, who names him, but it says that Moshe went out when he grew up, he went out to his brethren. And the reader says, who are his brethren? He's an Egyptian, he's a Jew, what is he? What's his identity? But we discover right away, he identifies as a Jew. And the identification as a Jew, why does he identify as a Jew? After all, he has two mothers. He has the mother who nursed him. He has the mother who named him, who brought him up. Good woman, but she's an Egyptian, good person. But she also has, he also has a sister. And the determining factor, the katuva shlishi, one might say, is the sister. And the sister stands from the distance. So he identifies his siblings as, as, as Israelites, as Hebrews. The sister is the determined. The sister plays the role of mother in the story, but she's also his sister. So it's a good, another good, wonderful example of how these stories play out in other texts. And when you read that second story, it puts into very sharp relief the behavior of Hagar as highly problematic. Not to say we don't sympathize with her, but in fact, but in fact, the distancing over here from the one with whom you should be there in a time of travail is very problematic. And uh, I'll take one more verse here and then I'll stop for comments or questions. And she, she stands far away. How far away does she, does she sit? A bow shot away. And she cries. And then it says, but God heard the cry of the boy. It's interesting that the, the story that leads into this is about God said to Abraham, means obey her voice, listen to what she says, hear her voice, accept her voice, listen to her voice. So the story, but what precipitates the whole episode is the command of Shema B'Kola, to hear the voice. And now we're told that though Hagar cried in verse number 16, but God heard the, the, the voice of the Nar. Once again, he's called the Nar. Not her voice. It doesn't say God heard her cry. It says God heard the cry of the Nar. And the angel calls down to Hagar, What's the problem, Hagar? When he was the problem? I'm going to die of thirst, and my son's going to die of thirst. She also has no water. They're both going to die. What do you mean, it's a critique. What's your problem? What's your problem? 
After all, Al-Tiri, don't be afraid. God has heard the cry of the boy, the one over there. That's a critique. The one that's far away from you. Maybe you can't hear the cry from where you're sitting. But we hear it very well from where we are. So that is a critique. The Basher Husham, the one you put over there, that's the critique. Don't be afraid because after all, you've been promised already by the, by the angel in chapter 16 that he'll become a great nation. So you have a promise. You have a God's commitment. So don't be afraid. It's going to turn out all right. So I, there's more to say here. Let me just stop at this point and take comments or questions, and then we'll continue with this. A couple of other thoughts about chapter 21. Yes. Uh, in uh, uh, in English, uh, in English, there is the, the the term to shoulder responsibility. That's right. So uh, it it's this concept of shikma. Absolutely, shouldering responsibility is precisely parallel to what we have over here. Hundred percent. No, no, no question. Also, now the Yachdav of the Akeda sounds even more strong. Of course, 100%. It will lead us, this chapter in general, the one who saw the Akeda as relating primarily to the story of Yishmael and Hagar is, is, uh, is Rashi. That's Rashi's view. We'll get to the Akeda. We're not going to be able to finish it in one week. But the truth is that the Akeda is a culminating story. It's God's last communication. And as such, it plays off many stories. And the only question is, which is primary? In fact, the Akedah is the culminating story. It plays off the story over here. It plays off Abimelech. It plays off the whole Abraham narrative. It plays off the creation stories. It plays off everything. But 100% that the one that is, for Rashi, the most striking is the story over here. And Avram's behavior in chapter 22, in contrast to, uh, to the abandonment, one might say, of her child, so the after, which appears twice, is certainly an excellent point, and it's one of many uh, connections that we'll find between the Akedah and the story of here, which actually begins the same way by Yashkem Avram Baboka. They actually, it's a tip off right off the bat, that the Torah wants us to read the two stories, one in conjunction with the other. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, it would, seem, it would seem that actually in God's instruction to Abraham, He's reversing the role of the male and female that, uh, that accompanied um, um, their being thrown out of Eden. Right, that's true, that, the, uh, that over there the mistake was, you hearken to the voice of your wife. Now, of course, you know, it's not that straightforward because the voice of the woman in the Genesis, in the Gan Eden story, is kind is exactly the opposite of what God has said. What I mean is the curse has been lifted, at least in this case. Right, in this case, for sure. In other words, the point of this case is that you, I mean, and it makes complete sense. In other words, when someone tells you something which is in consonance with God's will, as best we know what God's will is, then of course we listen and we thank the person for giving us a good piece of advice. But when the, uh, when the, when the, when, the, when the voice that we're hearing seems to contradict what God would want, then we are told uh, to, to disregard that voice. The Gemara puts it in very striking terms of 
someone appoints you as an agent to do an Avera, so the Talmud says, you are responsible. Whether the one that sent you is responsible is a different question, but you are responsible. Why? What do you listen to? If the master tells you to do X and the pupil says, what do you listen to? Is it not the, the master? The master is God. So God says, do X. And someone else says, don't. So we are commanded to listen to the master, to God's voice, and we are responsible. You can't say so-and-so told me to do it as an excuse. The Gemara rejects that completely. We don't care who told you to do it because God told you otherwise. So that's for sure. But you're 100%. I mean, I agree. The story here does play off. When you read the story here of Shema B'Kola, you do uh, certainly hear that God ate in the story as well. I wanted to mention something else here, by the way, that I raised last week, separate question. And I pointed out that on Rosh Hashanah, the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, we observe two days Rosh Hashanah, even in Israel. But initially in the Torah, Rosh Hashanah was one day. And there's all historical question, when did in the land of Israel, Rosh Hashanah began to be celebrated for two days? When did that happen? Was that always the case or not? And there's, of course, very good evidence that for a long period of time, there was one day Rosh Hashanah in the land of Israel. One of the pieces of evidence, actually a very interesting piece, that on Rosh Hashanah, uh, so on Rosh Hashanah, the general practice of the traditional communities is to say piyutim on Rosh Hashanah. Various poems on Rosh Hashanah. And the Ashkenazim, many of the piyutim that they say, uh, some say more, some say less, are written by Eliezer Kalir. Kalir is the great poet of Israel, whom the Ashkenazim have adopted as their own. He was not an Ashkenazi. He lived in the land of Israel, presumably. But the Ashkenazim, maybe because we don't have too many great poets of our own, we Ashkenazim, the Sephardim have their own poets. They don't really need a Kalir. But uh, the Ashkenazim adopted Kalir. So what's interesting is, if you remember, that on Rosh Hashanah, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, this year was different. In many places, they said no piyutim altogether. But on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, uh, there is no, you, there's no, there are no piyutim in the first two blessings of, actually the first three blessings of, uh, of uh, the Shemona Esrei and Musaf. And you, generally speaking, you jump right into Unetana Tokef, a medieval composition. Why is that? Why on second day of Rosh Hashanah, we have none of the additions in the, in the, in the first three blessings until you get to Unetana Tokef? What happened to them? And the answer actually is very simple. For many years, I had all kinds of ingenious uh, solutions to the problem, all of which are not true. And the simple truth is this. The piyutim that we say, we Ashkenazim say, mostly were written by Eliezer Kalir. Kalir didn't write piyutim for the second day Rosh Hashanah. He didn't observe it. He had only one day Rosh Hashanah. So we have no Kalir for the second day. So we jump into Unetana Tokef, of course, is a medieval composition. One of the economists wrote that. And uh, so they observe one day Rosh Hashanah. When you observe one day Rosh Hashanah, what do you read in the synagogue? The Gemara says you read Hashem Pokaretz or chapter 21. It doesn't say where you end, but it says where you start. Did they read the arcade at all? Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe no. So last week I had one suggestion as to why we, they chose Hashem Pokaretz or Rosh Hashanah. I talked about God's intervention. 
which is kingship. God intervenes between Sarah and Abraham because God has to intervene. But there is another thought I had for many years about the reading on Rosh Hashanah, why we read the, or the relevance of, of this story on Rosh Hashanah. Because Vashem Pokalet Sarah describes the birth of Isaac. God intervenes, the birth of Isaac, essentially the choosing of Isaac. But the truth is most of the story that we read is not about Isaac at all. It's actually about Yishmael. And in, on the story we are told is, God said to Hagar, what do you, don't be afraid. God has heard the cry of the, of the boy, of the lad, child, which means literally the one over there. But in rabbinic text has another meaning. means, and we use it that way colloquially as well, it means at this point in time. In other words, the Talmud says, now what Ishmael is going to become later. Now what his descendants may become, much of which is negative, says the Talmud. That's irrelevant. You don't judge a person by what the person will become later, for the most part. You judge fundamentally by what the person is. Right now, he's an innocent child who's going to die in the desert. Is he fully innocent? No. He was mitzachek. He's guilty. Everybody's guilty. And the fact of the matter is, so on Rosh Hashanah, the one who comes closest to representing us on Rosh Hashanah is actually Yishmael. Yishmael is the one, yes, he made mistakes. He's in a very bad place now. And he's, he's crying, he, he cries out. And God is hearing the cry of, of this child. And it's interesting in the Chumash that the Chumash never says Yishmael is crying. Never says it, says she's crying. So God hears the cry of the one over there. At this point in time, God is hearing the cry of the one whose cries cannot be heard. Is he crying? He is crying, but nobody can hear the cry. Maybe he can't even hear his own cry. But God is reaching out to the one who is in some deep way crying, even if unbeknownst to himself. So I was thinking that is another reason we read Vashem Pokhanet Sarah on Rosh Hashanah. For we people, most people are neither holy righteous people, nor are they terrible sinners. Most people are somewhere in between, like Yishmael. And we, at this point in time, we're hoping that God will hear our, our voice, our cry. And the shofar represents our cry. Shofar is a cry with no words. It tries to uh, reflect maybe our deepest feelings may be unknown to ourselves. Maybe that's another reason why in Rosh Hashanah, they chose the, Chazal chose the story of Hashem Pokhan at Sarah. Not just because of God's intervention in an impasse, but because it reflects the human condition, which is on one hand, mistake-ridden. On the other hand, there's a positive side to it. There's, a, there's, there's something good about it. It's, it's not... He's not villainous. Yishmael is not a villain. And no, no text suggests he's a villain. Suggests he misbehaves, misunderstands his place or whatever. Part may be his mother's fault. Part may be Sarah's fault. Part is Abraham's fault. Everybody's at fault. So maybe that's an additional reason. Okay, just wanted to make that point as well. It's interesting right. that uh, Moshe's sister is not crying, by the way. No, well, the, Moshe's sister is not crying because 
there's no time for tears. Moshe's sister is being exactly. vigilant and watching and hopeful, actually. Yeah, she's being, she's being practical. She's being practical. Being practical. Exactly. And the, uh, one can read the story, actually, as a ploy. I think that if you read the story of the mother and the daughter, as they know that, we don't know what they know. Do they know that Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the side of the Nile in the morning with her attendants? We don't know if they know that or not, but it's quite possible they do know that. And they're hopeful that this woman will be uh, sympathetic to what she sees, this newborn helpless infant floating near the water. Maybe that's, and of course the irony is that Pharaoh had decreed against the boys, but not against the girls. It's his own daughter actually, who, who against Pharaoh's desires, decides to adopt this child, which she does. She actually adopts him, she actually names him. And uh, she's, a, she's heroic. She's not, a, she's, not a, she's not an Israelite. She's a heroic person, but Moshe's own identity is largely formed by the mother and the sister. I believe that's what the, the Medrash means when it says, when it identifies the mother and the daughter in chapter two with the midwives at the end of chapter one with Shifra and Pua. It doesn't mean they're actually the same two people. In fact, Shifra and Pua may not even be Jewish. The Egyptians who birthed the Hebrews. But the identification is clear. The midwives have a ploy. When a pharaoh says, why did you do this? And they have an answer. Well, they give birth too quickly or whatever. And they do it because they're God-fearing people. They disregard pharaoh's commands. And that's the substance of chapter two as well. That these women, the mother, the daughter, and pharaoh's daughter, the three of the women conspire to save this infant who will become the redeemer of Israel. No question about that, but it's always through the ingenuity of these women. So it's to know it's what they are. It's all planned out. It's a plan. It happens to work. And uh, the distance over there is not, I don't want to see him die. Uh, the distance is far away from a vantage point where I can know what the right thing to do is. And the moment she sees an opportunity, she rushes down. Shall I call you a nursing woman from the Hebrews? All right, let's continue now with the, yes, to hear the cry. You know, it's interesting to, is a, it was a famous Hasidish Rebbe. I forget his first name. I think it was Menachem, of Vurka, the Rebbe of Vurka. He was a Rebbe and his son was also a Rebbe, called him the, uh, the uh, Stiller Rebbe, the silent Rebbe. He didn't talk too much. And the story <laughs> is once somebody met a Hasid, what did the Rebbe say last Shabbat What did he say on the third Sabbath meal? The Chosid said, the Rebbe was silent and uh, everybody listened. And that's the story over here, actually. That's the point. God heard the cry of the boy. What, what cry? It doesn't say there was a cry, actually. But to hear the cries that nobody can hear. That's, 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 that's a big deal if you can do that. The world is crying all the time, but we, don't, we learn not to hear it. Every so often we hear it. And uh, so this is Hanar. That's what we find Rosh Hashanah. That's the shofar. These are the deep cries that we don't even understand what they are. We haven't processed them yet. But there's the cries, they're the words. Okay, anyway, let's go on here. So this is Vasher Husham, the one over there. Kumi Siet Hanar. Arise, she said, get up, carry the boy, and hold this child. That once again suggests that she's at fault for not holding the child, as sympathetic as we are. 
He will go, I'll make him a great nation. I told you that already, make him a great nation. You had that form of promise. And now we have, but they have no water. They still have no water. And now we have verse 19. So God opened up her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she fills up the jug with water and she gives the nar, again a nar, water, water to drink. So here there's something actually very interesting about the construction of verse number 19. Because we have this earlier in the Chumash. We have it actually at the Akedah. We have it at the Akedah, an expression twice, actually, in sharp contrast to verse 19. And what I'm referring to in the Akedah, in chapter 22, is both verse number four. Abraham is walking with Yitzchak and his Narim to the place that God has spoken of, right? And... Uh, the Torah says, Vayom HaShlishi, Vayisa Abraham et Enav, Vayarat HaMakom Erachom. On the third day of the journey, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Vayisa Abraham et Enav. And we have it also later, after the angel says to Abraham, do not sacrifice your son, don't touch your son, don't harm your son. Verse number 13, Vayisa Abraham et Enav, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the, the ram entangled in the brush. And he goes, he takes the aisle and he brings it as a sacrifice instead of his son. So twice in chapter 22, we have the expression, he saw Abraham at Deinav, he lifted up his eyes. And that is in very striking contrast to what we have in verse number 19 of our chapter, 21, God opened her eyes. There's all the difference in the world between God opened her eyes and Abraham lifted up his eyes. Of course, God opened her eyes suggests, first of all, that she by herself is not able to see. Remember earlier we encountered back in chapter 16 the, the idea of seeing. The angel actually meets Hagar in chapter 16, our iron by the well, but iron also means an eye. And she names the place Be'er Rachai Ro'i. God has seen me. But God doesn't say God saw her. He said God heard in chapter 16. So she's not, she thinks, she may think she sees, but she doesn't see. And over here as well, God opened her eyes. And actually it's very striking. God opens up her eyes and she sees a well of water. So what it sounds like is, where is this well of water? Was it hidden someplace? Or was the well always there? But she failed to see it. Sounds to me like the well is there. Sometimes the solution is right in front of us. We don't see it. So is all about someone who can't see. But God, because God has made promises, and because this child is not to be condemned in this way at this point, so God opens up her eyes. But the point of the Akedah is exactly the opposite. The emphasis of the, the Akedah is Abraham's ability to see. That's what's emphasized by Isaac, Abraham, And in fact, it's emphasized in a different way of the Akedah as well. Apart from the double by Isaac, Abraham, there's something else about the Akedah 
which underscores the idea of seeing. Now, when we get to the Kedah story, uh, either today or start next week, we ourselves will encounter this idea of seeing as the central idea of the Akedah. But just to point out one way that's very interesting is the very beginning of chapter 22. In the beginning of chapter 22, we're told that God is testing Abraham. And then uh, in verse number two, the command, take your son, so bring him up as a sacrifice on one of the mountains, Asher Omar Elacha, that I will tell you. And when you read that verse, Abraham, leave where you are, Lech Lecha, and go to one of the mountains that I will tell you, anybody who reads that verse, immediately connects to God's first communication with Avram back in chapter 12, Parashat Lech Lecha, it's called Lech Lecha. And there God said to Avram, Lech Lecha, leave your home, your land, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So in chapter 12, the command is what I will show you. But in chapter 22, it's to what I will tell you, not I will show you. And, but the, but the chapter, but the chapter, but the Akedah does not abandon the idea of seeing, except that God doesn't have to show him. But in 22, it's about Abraham's ability to see on his own. He knows, generally speaking, where to go, but he sees it, and he sees it from a distance. And he sees the aisle without being told what to do with it. Whether Achar means later or afterwards, or maybe even behind suggests possibly. But the point is, this is about somebody at the Akeda who sees perfectly. He can see what others can't see. He sees from far away. He sees, he perceives. He knows what to do with the aisle, though having never been commanded. He figures out what God would want. And of course, this raises the question, apart from the contrast to Hagar of chapter 21, of our chapter, it raises another question. How could this be that the person who in chapter 20 talks about wandering aimlessly, ever since God told us to wander aimlessly, and who talks like Abimelech, the Gam, and who says, she really is my sister, and we do this every place. And all kinds of terutsin. How could this fellow, this same person, be the person who sees perfectly in chapter 22? That's the question. Perfectly. The Akedah is the perfect fulfillment of God's command. And don't let anybody ever tell you different either. Because that's not right. It's perfect fulfillment of God's command. And he sees perfectly. And he knows what God would want before God says a word. How could that be the same person? What happened in between 20 and 22? And the answer, of course, is 21. Because Yishmael, through largely no fault of his own, has become an obstacle for Abraham. We're not putting all the blame on Yishmael, because it's not all Yishmael's fault. It's his mother's fault. It's his fault. It's Sarah's fault, who, who abuses, who mistreats Hagar, and forces her to run away. And it's Abraham's fault, doesn't want to get involved. Do whatever you want. Do whatever. Do I see? I told me Do whatever you want. Not my problem. He absents himself from the from the whole problem, and we end up with the Yishmael of chapter twenty-one. And Sarah said correctly, "It's a terrible thing. Maybe she may not think it's terrible, but it's a terrible situation. He's got to go. As long as he is here, you never see right. You will never see straight. You got to remove the obstacle." 
So once he's removed in chapter 21, and don't worry, he has a blessing. He's going to be a great nation, a great blessing. Don't worry about him. He's going to be just fine. But for Abraham, he's got to go. That's what God said. Listen to her then, listen to her now, because he's exactly right. So that's it, 21 is the critical chapter, which removing the impediments to seeing clearly. You still have to see clearly. You still have to act upon your perception. But we have to be in a situation where we can see. And Yishmael was the obstacle preventing Avram from seeing. I just wanted to, this is the few thoughts I had. I'm sure there are more, but just to round out what we started with last week. So let me take some comments or questions now, and then one make one last uh, uh, observation about chapter 21. And we'll start the arcade next week. We'll see how far we can get. Anybody who wants to speak up, please do. Yes, that's true. So it's not only seeing, it's knowing, actually. Right. Well, to, in English, too, you say to, uh, to uh, perceive. To seeing, or the Mishnah, I choose, it could be choosing, it could be to see and to know are related. Yeah, in the book of Shmuel, many times you have me to see and know what to do. And that's an interesting question, the specifics of seeing versus knowing. That's an interesting discussion. Someone else has something to say here? Uh, this is Mike. I just, I just, I just didn't understand. I, I see that uh, he's a, uh, Ishmael is an obstacle, okay? But he, was, he wasn't the obstacle before. He wasn't the obstacle with uh, Avimelech. He wasn't the obstacle with Pharaoh. Uh, so it seems like uh, removing that obstacle, is, it doesn't explain enough about his change, about Abraham's change, because it only, it's a new obstacle, but it wasn't the old obstacle. No, I think the obstacle is the, the, the issue in the Avram story from beginning to end, which the Akeda addresses. But if you ask yourself, you have these many chapters. If we ask ourselves the question, which is a very important question, what is the main issue or issues in the Abraham narrative? There are maybe 20 different things that take place. But and looking at the biblical text, what is the core issue of the Abraham narrative? And the core issue, as far as I understand it, and from day one I said it, is the question of succession. Who is going to succeed this, this person who has a covenantal blessing, but we meet him when he's 75 years old? He's not a youngster. So who's, how is it going to proceed? How is it going to work? And that's the core question. Is it going to be Lot? Is it going to be Eliezer of Damascus? Is it going to be Ishmael? Is it going to be Isaac? That's one core question. There's a reason that the book of Shmuel chose these, this story of Abraham as one of, if not the key story, which it plays off. There's a good reason for that. It's about succession. The other issue has to do with discovering the, whole, the chosen place. Abraham's lechucha, Abraham's to move from place to place. And his mission, which he's been given, is to discover or uncover the sacred place, which is the replacement of the Garden of Eden. And the sacred place in the Abraham narrative in the Bible is twofold. There's a special land in which God speaks for the land of Canaan. That's one sacred space, alternative sacred space. And then there is the Mishkan, Mikdash, Har Moriah, and all that. And Abraham's two lechuchas are directed to those two places. The first lechuchah is about the land, and the second is about the holy space within the land. So that's the, that the obstacle is, the, the various obstacles which revolve around Sarah primarily. Because he doesn't see, he doesn't see, he doesn't understand how the family works. 
Sarah is his wife, his covenantal partner. Isaac is the covenantal child. Yishmael is a child of his that he loves. Hagar is the slave, Amma Shifra. And the obstacles revolve around this core question of how the family works. But once you get that straight, how the family works, once you understand Isaac is this one covenantal child, you love them both. There's one covenantal one at this point. It's not like Jacob was 12 covenantal children. One, co one is covenantal, one is not. And until Abram gets that clear in his head, which he gets clear in 21 and then 22, which we'll get to next week, there he affirms the truth. Yitzchak is my covenantal child. Now we have to remember, this is an important point about the covenant in Sefer Breshit. I made this point many times. It's a covenant that most people would say no thank you to. Because the covenant actually has conditions attached to it, which are very, 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 uh, very, very difficult to, to fulfill, hard to accept. Namely, the suffering of three generations, Gerud, Abdul Inui, for a promise, for a blessing you never see. Because the blessing accrues to the fourth, fourth generation shall return to the land. The covenantal person of the book of Genesis, the covenantal person of Genesis, without question, you have to pick out one person. Maybe we'll study it uh, together, not too far in the future, hopeful, is of course Jacob. Jacob is the main character. Jacob is Israel. And Jacob said about his own life, you don't have to speculate. He said it straight up when Pharaoh said, how old are you? And his answer was very simple. Not as old as you think. My ancestors lived longer than I did. My years, I use two adjectives to describe my life. One is ma'at, my years are short. And the second is ra'im, and they've been bad. Now, they're not bad, Jacob, in the sense they are objectively difficult. But Jacob wouldn't do it any, have it any other way. Jacob is the covenantal. Jacob sets up the blessing for the future. And he sees himself as part of that future. As the Talmud says, Jacob doesn't die. Jacob lives through it through his descendants. So he doesn't reject it, but he's saying from an objective, for you, Pharaoh, if you look at my life, Pharaoh, there's only one way to describe it. But pretty bad. You name the problem, I got it. You know? That my, my wife, my children, it works. You know what I mean? I don't where I live, my father-in-law, etc. It's been bad. And short. But that's part of the covenant. He describes his own situation in Ravan's house in three words. Jacob said it. He says it himself. That's how he describes his life. But it's not just punishment. It's actually covenantal. And the point is, so it's a covenant most people would say, no thank you. That's what Asaph says. That's not for me. I want my blessing now. And he has a blessing. Yishmael, no thank you. I live in the, I live in the, in the, in the moment. I live it today. I don't live tomorrow. I live now. So most people would say no thank you. Okay, so that's the covenant. Okay, that's what it is. So to be covenantal means a, a great burden is placed upon you. You are a ger. Abraham is called a ger. Yitzhak is called a ger. Yaakov is called a ger. But with Yaakov, you have all three coming together in the most striking way. And Jacob sets up the future. Jacob is Israel. So that's the point. But the point of the story, looking at the, that's the significance of the Akedah, among other things, the Lechucha. You go back to that first Lechucha and you look at Abraham's life and then you ask the question, and this is a very important question, 
what are the key motifs of the Abraham story? It goes off in a hundred directions. Same as you're going to Gemara. You know, you're going to Gemara, it goes off in a hundred places. And the trick in Gemara is figuring out what is the core thing that Gemara is dealing with? What is the whole question or questions? It goes off to a million tangents and you can get lost there. If you got to get, what is it actually about? What is, what is the core idea of this particular tracting? What's it about? That's why the Rambam is so useful, actually. Rambam gets you back. What is it actually about? Not the side stuff. So that's what I'm saying about, yes, it plays out in a variety of ways, but it's actually about one thing, how the family works. And as long as he thinks that Sarah's his sister, it ain't gonna work. It's at the arcade that he suddenly, the light, you know, the illumination is there. He gets it perfectly clear. He understands Yitzchak and, and Sarah. And the first thing things he does after the Akeda is he makes sure that Sarah gets replaced, that Sarah is recognized, that there's a replacement for Sarah, who's Rifta, et cetera, et cetera. We'll see how far we'll get. But that's uh, that's what I would say. Uh, anybody else? And then we'll make one last observation here about uh, this chapter. And next week- we'll I, would, I would have said also, I would have asked uh, about the, the laughter. I would like to come back to the laughter because definitely Abram is changing, but I see a big change in Sarah uh, from the first laughter she had in, in chapter 18. And there was this, for example, this Tekachesh, uh, which is, reminds us a lot of the Nahash. And it's a laughter of interiority of, uh, um, it's not a public laughter. It's in contrast to the laughter of Abram, who is a very like, it's a loud laughter. And uh, when we arrive in 21, uh, it's a uh, cool, it, it says everybody who will listen to, uh, to this story will laugh with me. And so uh, what is this, all those three laughters, then there's the laughter, of course, of, uh, of Ishmael, which is a laughter of laughing about something. But all those laughters have in, in common the laughter about something that's incredible. And all this story of the, the Akira is an incredible story. Who would have thought that a 90 years old woman would have a child? Would you, who would have thought that, you know, uh, Abraham would sacrifice the child? Who would have thought that maybe a 20 year old child would let himself be sacrificed? So all this is incredible. And actually, um, I find it interesting if I put this together with the idea of listening, which, um, which Ismail is actually the name of. Uh, we intend with Ishmael to have God listen to us. Uh, and I think uh, since Lamech example, uh, you know, when he says, uh, um, listen, my wife, listen to my voice, we expect the other people to listen. We expect here God to listen. And I think, um, uh, isn't that two almost theological problems? Like if we, we are here and to suffer and then ask God to relieve us of our suffering, which is actually what uh, Hagar is uh, doing, uh, uh, or uh, first of all, with Abraham is doing it since, uh, since chapter 15, yes. or is it that, uh, can we see maybe the relation to God as something that is incredible and that we, and it's joyous actually, because I think in the, in the last loft in 21 days, it's a joyous loft that is shared by everyone in front of this incredible story or in the incredible relationship that we can have in relation to being actually. So I think it's, it's something very deep and that's incarnate embodied here by Sarah. And I, I see this also like that this is play, being played into the, the Yaketa story, like the change that uh, Sarah undergoes here. Okay, I would say that, I mean, you said several different things. I would say in terms of 21, I think, Yes, there is a, it's not, you're right, in chapter uh, 18, it's Bikirba. 
she laughs. Say how and and God is hearing the laughter. That's you can't hear it, but but God can hear the laughter. Why is she laughing? I think I would say that in chapter twenty-one, part of it has to do with, as we say in English, the one who gets the last laugh laughs best. I think that there's a recognition in chapter twenty-one that God works in mysterious ways, and that in fact it's a kind of almost a kind of confession that we don't always understand the way God is working, and only at the end of a uh, a certain point in time, we can look back and we can reflect back on this whole process. And as God said, nothing is impossible. And uh, so that I, on one hand, it is a, I think, a vindication of God in Sarah's eyes. God gets the last laugh. On the other hand, it's also an affirmation that what God has said is nothing is impossible. And maybe that's not a bad way to enter into the Akeda because the Akeda is a problematic from the following standpoint, actually from several, but one of them is if, if since we've, we've had spent all our time and the Torah has spent the time affirming that Isaac is the one covenantal child, there's nobody else because Yishmael is sent away. How can God then turn around and say, bring him up as a sacrifice if you bring Isaac as a sacrifice? Maybe a sacrifice may be a wonderful thing and maybe God's entitled to ask for, but then where is the future given the fact that the entire story is headed in one direction, namely that Isaac shall be the successor. But then in the very next chapter, this test, as it were, is to sacrifice the only possible successor. So the, the reader is wondering, we know God works in mysterious ways, but how is God going to, uh, how, how will Abraham understand God's directive in such a way that allows the command to be fulfilled at the very same time to uh, allow the covenant to be fulfilled, it seems to be totally contradictory. That's maybe that's part of leading into it is that is precisely the problem of the Akeda. But in terms of the point you made, you've touched on many different things, but I would just, the point I would emphasize is that when Sarah says, that at the end of the day, it's a recognition that apart from any other meanings that might have that I suggested in the past, it's a, a kind of confession of saying, you know, I didn't believe it at the time. And sometimes there are many reasons that people that, that we laugh at things, you know what I mean? One of them is something that's totally unexpected takes place, surprising or unexpected. There's a certain punchline or something, someone's walking along and suddenly all of a sudden falls into a pit, which is not funny because we really hurt themselves, but it looks funny when you see it on, you know, because it's so unexpected. You assume something's gonna happen and then all of a sudden something very different takes, takes place. We have all kinds of assumptions we make. Thinking about Miguel and Esther. Haman assumes he's going to the king to tell him to kill Mordechai. And we read the story, we're laughing our head off because everything you say is leading in exactly the opposite direction to this fellow who's quite sure he knows what the ending will be. So, I mean, you raise a lot of interesting questions and the question of laughter in general is, is a good one. Maybe we'll have time to revisit this. We get more into Yitzchak. I plan to get to Yitzchak in these sessions and we build again to Yitzchak, but let me say, make one, one last point over here before I stop, and that is uh, just briefly that the last verse over here in the Yishmael story, verse number 20, 21, Yishmael lives in the desert. He's totally fine. And his mother takes him away from Mitzrayim. But Yishmael in verse 20, he becomes a bowman. And it's striking because, of course, we know that Hagar's distance from Yishmael is 
Keshet, a bow shot away, she abandoned him. And maybe the Chumash is suggesting that what he becomes is a function of the kind of parenting that he gets. And uh, we know that that's possibly true. And very often, there are many other factors in terms of what somebody becomes apart from the parenting. But the point is, my point here is that the verse after that, after that in verse number 22, we have Abimelech coming out to Abraham with his general. And he wants to make a treaty with Abraham. He wants to make a treaty. And I just wanted to suggest that the impetus for making a treaty with Abraham is not Abimelech's righteousness or his deep respect for Abraham. And after all, after Abraham dies, he will stop up all the wells that Abraham dug and try to rip off his son. But the main motive for going out with his general to make a treaty with Abraham, and he says, remember not to, not to abuse me or my descendants, that what concerns him is not Abraham and righteousness, what concerns him in the immediate moment is his son, and not Isaac either, Ishmael. He's got on his border in the south a very, very, very powerful person. So Abimelech is concerned about that and suddenly very worried about the next generations. Because what he really wants is to make sure that Yishmael doesn't turn on, on, on Abimelech. And so next week we'll continue with this. And um, I was just thinking that, you know, we had a terrible news uh, the last few days from the situation in Israel really a terrible situation. And I, you know, I feel I mean, the Jewish people should be grieving together with all those that died. Should never have happened in the first place. There will be a time, hopefully in the near future when we begin to think we, I don't mean we here, but the Jewish people and especially those in Israel, the government, the various parties, mm-hmm. the various different groups of Haredim, the general public, the uh, businesses, how could something like this ever take place in the first place? Now right. is not the time for that. As I wrote, now is the time for crying. But somewhere down the road, there's got to be a din v'cheshman about this stuff. And it goes way beyond this particular incident. It's in general the way we Jewish people do business and the way we make decisions and the way we take things into account and the way we come to kind of, kind of consensus for all of us. That's my hope and prayer that we'll be able to, if something comes out of this disaster, which could have been a hundred times worse, I would add. Yeah. And uh, hopefully there'll be a, a reckoning, a din v'cheshben over here. Your letter was beautiful. Very touching, your letter. Okay, thank you. So I look forward to seeing you next week and uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Abba Siva. Thank you. You were brilliant. Thank you. Just brilliant. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, we hopefully will have information coming out soon about our pre-Shavuot learning uh, as well. Uh, the, the, we are looking forward to having everyone back next week for our, our final session for this. And then uh, in the week leading up to Shavuot, we will have a couple series that should be up on our website soon. So we hope that you'll check that out. And in the meantime, have a great week. We look forward to seeing you back here uh, next week.